Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Okay, please welcome as a feature film director, Sarah Polly. Congratulations on the movie. It's great. Can you just tell us, to start off, or tell us a story about how you encountered the Alice Monroe short story? Um, well, I had just uh, finished working with Julie on um, Hal Hartley's film, No Such yeah. Thing. And I was on the plane on my way back from Iceland, where it shot. And I picked up The New Yorker on the way home. And, uh, and I saw there was a new Alice Monroe short story, and I'm a huge fan of Alice Monroe's. And I read this story, and I couldn't stop seeing Julie's face when I when I read it, and um, and I kind of cried all the way home, <laughs> um, and uh, just it, I was just so profoundly moved by the story, and um, and it definitely because I had kept seeing Julie's face occurred to me that it would make a great film, but um, I was really daunted by the prospect of adapting Alice Munro because um, I hadn't made a feature before, mm-hmm. and it seemed like a strange place to start. And uh, and I couldn't get it out of my head, and it sort of lived in my head for about two years yeah. and kept hmm. forming itself and casting itself. And then finally I tried to get the rights on a whim, thinking they would be gone or way too expensive, and then weirdly got them. So all of a sudden <laughs> had to make the film. I think it, it's something that will be relevant to anybody in a relationship, you know, sort of thinking about broader issues about mm-hmm. memory. I'm wondering what, you, what grabbed you about this. Why do you think this had a hold on you for, for that long period? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you never really know your, your personal reasons for these things. I mean, I, th- I think it was obviously objectively, a, I thought, a really beautiful story. And probably for me, I was at the very beginning of a relationship with the person I would eventually marry yeah. and was probably starting to think about what love looked like after life had its way with you. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know, probably, you know, you know, my mother died when I was very young. And so probably my first sort of really central emotional experience was watching you know my dad lose the love of his life and sort of discover a part of himself as that happened which is I think for me in a strange way it's like you know I keep talking about it as a love story but in a strange way I always feel like it's you know it's it's a coming of age story about a 77 year old man you know mm-hmm. like somebody sort of discovering themselves you know yeah. you know at the end of of a relationship and did you picture Gordon Pinsett in the role originally too I mean he's not um uh as well known here as he is, I think, in, in Canada. Mm. I did immediately yeah. see him. You know, there was really, for me, nobody else who could have played that part in the same way. And it was important to me, too, that, you know, he is so intrinsically Canadian in some way. And he, I think, gives the film a real sense of place, which I felt was important. Yeah. And then what, what was it like for you to sort of create the script? Because when you read the story, there are a lot of elements that are there, but sort of in different order, different places, mm. things like um, starting with the ski tracks. I mean, that's an image, I think, that comes up somewhere in the story, but it's not mm-hmm. at the opening. It kind of just formed itself, and of course there are things that are shifted, and structurally it's quite different from the story, and the relationship with Marion is quite different, and there are definitely a lot of characters that are added and subtracted. But ultimately, I feel like, you know, in my mind, it's a very faithful adaptation of the story, yeah. and 
it, to me, the film seemed very evident. Like it didn't feel like an arduous process to figure out how to make a film out of this story. It felt like it was incredibly cinematic, and the characters were so finely nuanced, and even the dialogue was so so specific and interesting mm -hmm. and intact. So I felt like it was a it was a really kind of a joyful process mm -hmm. to adopt it. And how about just finding the places? Because actually, so much comes is expressed through just what that different houses are like. Mm. The nursing home or the, the yeah, care yeah. facility like that you, you're, you're so sensitive to details of, of place and so and it's so expressive and that's something you had to find that that you had to imagine from the story that it, the <laughs> locations to me were actually the hardest part of, yeah, of making the imagine. film we're finding the right places and it took months and months and months and um, the locations manager jeff almost had a nervous breakdown <laughs> um, <laughs> because we couldn't really find what we were looking for for the longest time. What we were looking for was, you know, in the short story, they live on a farm. And so we were looking for this farm for about two or three months, and it just didn't exist. You know, this place that had this clear view, you know, to the house, which I thought was so kind of important for him to be sort of standing out, especially for the, the shot where the lights go out. And it, it just didn't really exist, and it didn't feel expressive in the way that, that it should. And I just felt like that was something that needed to be adapted for the screen, that it needed to become this this frozen lake. And, and the retirement home was really difficult because I, I didn't want it to feel um, just like a hospital and it had to be very, very light. Um, and, and you know, to find a place that could accommodate everything we were trying to do. It was a, that was like actually a real struggle to find those places and that they stand in contrast to each other, so. Were any of the sort of details about Alzheimer's from your own experience or, or things you would maybe research? I think the, the um, scene when, when she puts the frying pan in the freezer, I don't think that was in, in the story. And that's a great little detail. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it came from books that I read on Alzheimer's yeah. disease, like The Forgetting by David Shank or Hard to Forget mm -hmm. by Charles Pierce were books that were some of the most interesting books I've ever read, actually, you know, despite whether I was interested in the disease or not. A, a lot of the details in the retirement home came from the time I spent in my grandmother's retirement home with her for, the, you know, the last three and a half years of her life. And things like, you know, the hockey announcer is based on my uncle who had Pick's disease, who he was the, the voice of the Buffalo Sabres, Ted Darling, and he died of Pick's disease. And so that was sort of, you know, him. And so there are like little, you know, moments of things that I witnessed that ended up in it as well as research. What's so um, impressive about the film is how, as a piece of directorial work, is how it was short and simple it is. And that, I, don't, I don't think that simplicity could be that as easy as you make it sound. Could you talk about maybe what you learned from some of the directors have worked with great directors, many of whom have yeah. been here, to talk about their work? Yeah. So either Cronenberg or Adam Agoyan. Yeah. Could, is there anything specific you got from any of them? Well, Adam, Adam's probably the biggest influence on me because mm -hmm. I feel like I, working with him on his films um, was probably the pivotal experience for me in terms of realizing this was something I wanted to do with my life and take seriously and thinking of film as you know, a really interesting way of exploring and discussing ideas. Um, and, I mean, Adam always, uh, you know, always moves towards the restrained, I think, especially in, you know, dealing with very emotional subject matter. He's never somebody who's going to be manipulative or try to evoke anything from his audience. He's going to sort of give them the space to, mm -hmm. I think, experience it on their own terms. So I, I feel like he was very influential, you know, in terms of my own learning about film, and he's really been supportive of me as I've made my short films leading to this. Hmm. In terms of sort of giving space and letting things happen, the film seems so observational. You're looking at faces so much and sort of observing 
quiet moments or putting in touches just um, the way that shot of the milk being poured that, that opens the scene. Like, how do you do that on the set? What's your sort of frame of mind in terms of how you're maybe working with the cinematographer? And um, I mean, we, we were very structured about it. Yeah. Like, we were, like, very, very clear on, you know, exactly what we wanted to get, you know, months in advance of shooting it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always knew that I wanted this to really study their faces and linger a long time on their faces. But it was funny as we... As we moved through, you know, the process of shooting, we started to get closer and closer and closer. I mean, we started to realize that's where the film lived was, you know, as close as we could possibly get to these yeah. people. Hmm. I, I have to ask about Julie Christie. You both have interesting careers in that you, I know you've turned down some sort of big blockbuster type movies that you could have done. Um, famously, I guess, um, the movie Almost Famous as, as one example. You seem to want to do small small films. She's has not been making films recently, so could you talk about um, getting her to do this? Yeah, well, I I mean because I had become friends with Julie yeah. by the time I wrote this, I I knew that I would get a few no's before I got a yes. I mean I, yeah. I went in knowing that I was going to be turned down, and I think she just has a lot um, more going on in her life that she's interested in, yeah. in dealing with right now than acting. So she's a reluctant actor and. Um, it did take, you know, several months to convince her to, to actually be in the film. But I, I sort of knew that's what it would take, and, yeah. um, and I was thrilled that she ultimately did it. You were very young when you worked on uh, the Terry Gilliam film *Adventures of Baron Munchausen*, which was a huge spectacle movie. And, and how did that sort of make you think about the types of movies you wanted yeah. to make? Well, it was, it was a pretty definitive experience for was me, it? I would yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it defined who I am in many ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an absolutely terrifying experience for a child. Um, probably for everyone involved in that film, it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> but um, as a child, it was bewildering. And uh, you know, I was working extremely long hours, you know, like 16 and 17 hour days, and mm. there were explosives constantly going off very close to me, which was kind of traumatic. You know, being in freezing cold water for long periods of time. I mean, I made several visits to the hospital during the course of that film. So, you know, it's strange because I feel like somehow, you know, people have interpreted, you know, anybody who cares anyway has interpreted, <laughs> have interpreted the idea, you know, that I'm involved in independent film because that's what I'm interested in. And that's true. But I think it probably has less to do with being a cinephile than it does with just mortal fear, you know, <laughs> of ever going near a big budget film again, you know, so. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's hope you never get over that. Thanks. Then. How did Julie Christie go about preparing for this role? Um... I'm not sure I could speak to the specifics of it. I mean, I know that she's had people in her life with Alzheimer's disease, so this wasn't fo- totally foreign territory to her. I can say she's the hardest working actor I've ever seen. That you know, I think one of the reasons it takes her so long to commit to something is that once she does, um, there's nobody that's working harder and longer than she is. So um, I think her preparation was extensive and extremely in-depth, but um, I never asked her what the specifics of it was. Why did you choose a nonlinear structure to tell this story? Um, there are a couple of reasons for it. Um, the, the first reason was I, I liked the idea of us needing to be making connections and putting the film together in our minds. That idea of sort of mirroring the fractured memory um, that occurs in the film, in the structure of the film. Um, I was also interested in the idea of us knowing that this was going somewhere, that he was going to have... Um, an extremely large shift in the way he looked at 
this relationship she was having with with Aubrey and make this incredibly selfless gesture. But at the moment that we discover he's going to do that, it's unfathomable to us that he could or would do that. So that the momentum of the film came from how he was going to get there as opposed to where he was going to go. Um, and I felt that actually it kind of needed that forward movement and that sense of, you know, a little bit of mystery to sort of keep us keep us engaged. It was always my intention to structure it that way. I tried a linear version and it it was extremely plotting. Um, I don't know, maybe people found it plotting anyway, but <laughs> it was more <laughs> plotting than the other way. So so um, I found that was sort of important to it. I, I don't, it might also just come from also like, you know, growing up in Adam Ogoyan films, I, I have no sense of how to make a film with a linear structure. <laughs> it's just not in my nature, I don't think so. Uh, were there some real residents in the retirement home? Well, no, they were they were all actors. Um, and uh, and I had an amazing first assistant director, Dan Murphy, and you know we had like a really long conversation before we started about you know that being like the background being you know a huge character in the film and and I think he did kind of a miraculous job with that. So I would have to give him a lot of credit for that. Question about how your political activism fits into your sure. life? Yeah. Um. I've had a hard time reconciling it, to be honest with you, because um, uh, I don't think I have any uh, skills as a spokesperson. Um, I think I'm actually not a bad organizer. And so I've been really, um, my sort of love of being politically active is in the organizing um, context. And yet there's always a pressure if you're in the public eye from the media, but also the organizations themselves for you to be a public figure. And it's not what I'm good at, and it's I'm painfully aware when I'm working with these organizations that I'm working with people that would be much better than I would be at speaking to these issues. And I find that conflict very, very difficult. So um, it's been tough, and I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to just do the organizing part without um, seeming too precious about it. Um, and yes, I mean, I think ideally at some point I would find a way to make films that spoke to, you know, to politics in a way that I felt was, you know, interesting and important. But I feel like I've seen so few great political films in my life that actually managed to be elegant and graceful films and not just really um, uh, dogmatic or literal. So um, I feel like it'll be a few years before I can, you know, make a Battle of Algiers or <laughs> a Ken Loach movie. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping to sort of, you know, Wait until I feel like I'm ready before I before I combine those things. Have you had exchange with Alice Monroe about the film? Um, I've had very little contact with Alice Monroe, and I I think I sort of knew from reading about her and from being a fan of hers that she was not going to want to be you know crazily involved <laughs> in a movie. Um, so I wasn't surprised that she wanted to be involved. Um, I was desperate for her to at least read the screenplay before we went into production because I I needed to know if there was anything she had. A real problem with and it took months and months uh, to get her to read it and I didn't know how to get her to read it I just gave it to about 15 different people who knew her and um, and then just before we went into production I got a message on my machine from her saying that she had read the script and you know she was very happy with it and you know to give us her blessing and to hope that you know it went well and I thought it was actually you know my friend who's a guy doing an impression of Alice Monroe because it was so ridiculous that I was getting a message from Alice Monroe and I just remember at the end of the message there was this moment where she went, so 
there we go. And that was the moment where I was like, that is Alice Monroe. <laughs> Alice Monroe would say that at the end of a phone <laughs> message. <laughs> so um, I had that, and then I didn't hear anything again, and then we've been trying to get her to see the film. She hasn't seen the film, and then I wrote a foreword to the reissuing of the short story, and I got a message from her on my machine again about exactly one year later saying she was happy with the foreword. <laughs> that's all, that's my entire relationship with Alice Monroe. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Could you talk about how you developed okay. the character of Christy? Um, Madeline doesn't exist in the short story. There's a line about something an administrator or a supervisor says. Christy does exist, but she is... Wh what I did was I split the character of Christy from the short story into Christy and Madeline. Because um, Christy in the short story was incredibly sort of, you know, salt of the earth and empathetic and funny, and she was also quite callous and insensitive in moments. And... I loved that in the short story, and I tried to work it in, but I felt like in a film we, we weren't going to get the time to sort of think through those contradictions and those complexities, and and that he kind of needed somebody who he could speak to. So I made that into two, into two separate characters, and it was also probably reflective of my experience of my grandmother's retirement home where, you know, there were, you know, these administrators who were just very, like, you know, overworked and overwhelmed and did not, frankly, have time to be empathetic to every person they met. And then there were these, you know, nurses who somehow found time in their day to be, you know, loving and understanding and, and great listeners and who are sort of a marvel. So I guess I wanted to sort of show, show both sides of that. Can you talk a bit about working with Michael Murphy? Because that's a demanding role to do, with, I mean, basically with that dialogue. And it's... Well, it, it's funny because, you know, Michael Murphy is an actor I've always loved, and he's probably been in more of my favorite films than, than any other actor. I mean, he's just, yeah. I think he's Including amazing. Including McCabe with Julie Christie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, and I also love that they had this history, yeah. you know, and have known each other for, you know, years and years and been, you know, in films together, and, and that they did have this sort of unspoken history that, that you know, some of us would, would yeah, kind of yeah. know or intuit. And he was amazing to work with. He was like the cheerleader for the film. He was <laughs> so amazing to, to have around. So. Uh, your opinion was he going to wheel yeah, Aubrey yeah. in at the end afterwards? Yeah. You should hear Olympia's, <laughs> you should, Olympia Dukakis's like, like take on the ending is like, he should have just pushed him in the door and left. <laughs> just walked down the hall like, what the hell was that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think there's something really legitimate about that point of view. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. It's, it is the way the short story ends as well. And, of course, I've thought about it ad nauseum, you know, what happens. Um, my sense is she probably forgets, forgets Grant, you know, moments or hours or a day later and, and maybe remembers Michael Murphy's character, but probably not. Um, I don't know. I think probably the real ending of this film is quite a mess. Um, and I think that, you know, what I loved about the ending of the short story and the way I wanted to end the film was to, you know, I think we all know that this story has a tragic ending. And so it was sort of like giving people the choice to sort of either leave on that moment of communion or follow it through to its logical conclusion. But, but I guess the answer is I don't really know. Was it a hard film at all for you to get set up? I mean, $4 million is a modest budget. It's, you know, what was that like, just sort of getting it This going? particular film was yeah. really um, strangely easy to get going. Um, I, I tried to make another film for about three or four years, and it was just a disaster, and it went nowhere. And, um, 
And this film was, the majority of the financing came from Telefilm Canada, which is a, our public funding film agency, which is such a treat as a first time filmmaker to get your, to make your film with public money and to have final cut on your first film. And, you know, that's kind of an amazing privilege. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of people within that organization who I think were dealing with um, aging parents and, you know, p parents with Alzheimer's disease who, who felt an urgent need themselves to, to make the film. So um, we had a lot of support, yeah. Do you have any idea about how you want to sort of mix directing and acting, from, you know, for the, yeah. <laughs> for the coming years at least? Or, I mean, you're such a terrific director. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd really like to do both. And, mm -hmm. and somehow have kids as well, and I have no idea how that works. <laughs> I'm trying to do the math, and I don't know, but I, I'd but love to do both. Don't look at the math. If you, do the, if you look at the math, yeah. You're, yeah, you're not going to want to. Could you talk about the lighting in this film? In the hospital scenes, you use a lot of sunlight. Could you talk about your choice to do that? It's funny. It, I think that, that there's a one passage in the short story that she talks about a corridor that's bathed in, in light. I can't remember exactly how she words it. Um, but it sort of became this central image for me of the entire film. Um, I think it's something to do with the obliteration of memory. I, I feel like I can't quite talk about it literally without it sounding really trite, but um, um, I, I guess I also felt like I, I didn't want to paint this kind of gothic, depressing picture of a retirement home and um, that there are obviously things that are extremely uncomfortable about that facility and institutional, but I didn't want it to be obvious. Um, and and I, I think the only thing I knew about the film visually from the very beginning was that it had to just be drenched in this this winter sunlight, and that that was like an incredibly important um, direction for the film to go in. Was a question all the way in the back? Yeah. Okay. Was Aubrey the guy in the grocery <laughs> store? But well, we can do, let's do the first okay. two, then you can. The was first Aubrey the guy is, in the is is I don't know if he was if he was in the hardware store with with her when she was young, but. I, I, I've always liked to think that yes. I mean, I, I've seen this, I actually saw a situation like this in my grandmother's retirement home where people couldn't work out if these two people actually did know each other when they were young, but they were convinced they had been best friends as teenagers. And some of the details kind of added up and others didn't at all. And it was interesting seeing the families try to work out this puzzle. Um, and, uh, and the line, what a jerk. The line, what a jerk. <laughs> I mean, I think that, I, don't, I remember when I wrote... <laughs> When I wrote that scene in the script, it said, what a jerk, and then the stage direction says, but that's not what she's thinking. And I remember a lot of financiers going, well, how are we going to know that's not what she's thinking? <laughs> so I guess that you just proved them right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I guess for me, like, it's her way of... It's a performance. I mean, yeah, and of, of sort, it's, a, it's a kind of denial, and it's a kind of working out and grappling with the effect he's had on her, which is... A bit confusing, but yeah. I yeah. thought that came through in the performance. It's sort of like what a jerk for what she's about to. Oh, that's so interesting. Get into. Okay, it's not. <laughs> I, it's actually not something from the short story. So it's that's that's kind. It's amazing what you don't know about what you've written. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Maybe it's an American thing. <laughs> okay. No, that well, sounds like more of a Canadian oh, okay, thing. Okay, right, right. Sure. Did Julie Christie get together with Aubrey as? sort of to get back at her husband. Her I mean, it's interesting because if you, read, if you read the short story, some people find that very ambiguous. So I think it's like an interesting question. Um, to me, um, it seemed that, uh, no, I feel like it was, it was part of, you know, her Alzheimer's disease that she, you know, had this attachment to this other person and forgot her husband. But I do think that she did have at moments 
a very vivid emotional memory and a very vivid anger um, about a previous time in their relationship. But I, I sort of like, I, I think it is ambiguous and should in a way remain ambiguous and up to interpretation because I think other people actually even read the short story very differently than I have. So I'm not sure about that either. Yeah, actually the music is, is wonderful. It's so integral to the film. And, and mm. so the question, okay. yeah, go ahead. You can applaud nice. the music. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, so did you ever think about not using music and then how did you build that? Okay. That? Um, well, you know, originally we didn't have a composer and we used a few Neil Young tracks and David, who edited the film, laid in some um, some Bach as well, some pieces of Bach. And then um, we found our composer, Jonathan Goldsmith, who I think is amazing. And um, somehow he married those two things and I don't totally understand how that's possible. Um, and it's funny because, you know, like I remember at first not really not wanting any music except for um, the Neil Young stuff and um, maybe like there were like one or two pieces of Bach and and he just would sort of say okay well let me just see if I can you know let me just write this and you don't have to use it let me just write this up you don't have to use it and I oddly it really worked for me um, what he wrote what he wrote um, my tendency like as an audience is always like there's always too much music in everything um, and I'm so scared of it. I mean, I have like this primal fear of of movie music. So it, it it took a lot for me to extend it, but in the end, it still ends up being like not enough to release a soundtrack. It's like I think 17 <laughs> minutes of music or something. So really, but yes, it did occur to me to use no music. Okay. Well, I, th I want to thank you so much, and then and please um, join us upstairs in the second floor thank gallery. Thank you very much. So. Thanks. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.